Let's pray. So God, what does it mean? This, this one in particular. As we go back to that life, speak to us about this life. We humbly pray in Christ's name. Amen. Anne Lamott, in her whimsical book, Traveling Mercies, Some Reflections on Faith, she makes this statement. I want you to think about this one. Not forgiving, all right, me not forgiving you, you not forgiving her. Not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. You have to think about that one. I know this might seem, in fact, I had a student come up to me after first church, man, Pastor, did you have to start with so, so heavy a beginning? But I'm going to ask the question anyway. Is there, is there someone in your life you have not forgiven? Am I drinking the rat poison? That's the question. Maybe your mother. Maybe a dad. Maybe a child. Maybe a roommate, maybe a husband, maybe a, maybe a wife, maybe a friend, maybe an enemy. Have we drunk the rat poison? That's the very question facing Joseph at this moment. I want you to open your Bible. We're cutting to the chase. Open your Bible to, to Genesis chapter 40. He faces the choice. He has to make it. You and I can't dug it either. Genesis chapter 40. At this very moment, Joseph is underground. Egyptian dungeons were subterranean. As it turns out, there are two other political prisoners in the prison with him. Chief, uh, Chief Butler, Chief Baker. Joseph has just interpreted their dreams. And in fact, in three days, it will, it will happen exactly as he predicts. As the chief butler is leaving, Joseph grabs his hand one more time and he says, I beg of you, I plead with you, please, when you get back to Pharaoh, remember me. I'm just a Hebrew slave. I did nothing to deserve this. Now, here goes. Last line of Genesis 23, Genesis chapter 40. This would be verse 23. I'm in the NIV. Take a look at this. He makes the plea, but the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Some of you know what it's like to live in the white space that follows. You see that little white space between the chapter 40 and 41? That is two long years of total silence. Some of you are living in that white space right now. Nobody remembers you. Feels like not even God himself. You're not on any radar screen. Why am I going through this? You know that white space? Some of us are in it right now. Obviously, in God's master plan, there's no such thing as white space. Obviously, every space of our life is packed with his intentional strategic plan for us. But Joseph has no clue. Two years, absolute silence. Look at chapter 41, verse 1. When two full years had passed, two 
totally off the radar screen of anybody except God. It makes you wonder, come on, just, just thinking out loud, could it be that these white spaces we live in are absolutely essential in God's master plan for our lives? Something's happening to Joseph. Something's happening to you. Something's happening to me right now in the white space. Verse 1 of chapter 41, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Middle of the night, seven sleek fat cows get gobbled up by seven gaunt and ugly cows. Then along come seven healthy heads of grain get gobbled up by seven withered heads of grain. And when Pharaoh awakens, all he knows is that there is some sort of ominous harbinger tucked away in these dreams and the whole palace is thrown into pandemonium. Somebody tell me what these dreams mean. Every magician, every wise man, every priest, the sages are brought in. Nobody knows. As the word filters through the palace, suddenly somebody remembers. Face blushing in apology. He stands before the king and he says, Oh, my Lord, I remember two years ago. There was this Hebrew kid. He was in prison. Before the butler can even finish the, the remembrance, the order is barked. Joseph is hurriedly summoned from underground. Now, I want you to catch this. Before he goes, he intentionally slows the process down. He changes his clothes. And then, fellows, listen to this. He shaves. If you're ever going for a job interview, may I give you a little hint out of the story of Joseph? Shave first. <laughs> we love the three-day stubble. It looks great on you, but not if you want your future like Joseph's. Just shave. He shaves. And in moments, I mean, it feels like moments, He's standing before what is arguably the greatest monarch in the world at that time, Almighty Pharaoh himself. Look at verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do, and the rest, as they say, is history. Stunning, dramatic history of a slave boy who in less than 12 hours becomes the prime minister of the greatest empire on earth. Go figure. Apparently, the white space is critical for wherever God is going in your life. Don't leave the white space yet. Man, overnight, in less than 12 hours. Look at Pharaoh. Drop down to uh, verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since, because Joseph has just interpreted the two dreams. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Wow. Are you serious? 42, verse 42, then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen. The boy has lost two, two coats already in this story, but guess what? It's all for getting one robe he'll wear for the rest of his life. Wow. Puts on the robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He made him, verse 43, ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, make way, yo, make way. Thus, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And all of that in one day. In one day. I love the way Carlisle Behanes 
describes it. This, this is just classic. I put it on the screen for you. Breathtaking indeed, exclamation mark. In the dungeon in the morning, in the palace by night, a condemned slave when the day began, the Lord of all Egypt at the day's end. At sunrise, awakening to another day of hope deferred. At sunset, looking back on a day of blazing glory, release, and the fulfillment of the cherished hopes of years. Hey, guys, here's the point. Never give up. Never, never, never give up. You got a dream? Hang on to that dream. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. God has white space. He'll fill the white space. But the dream will come true. Never give up. Don't ever let go of that dream. Whew. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. I mean, we haven't seen them in a while. But they're all there in Canaan. Yep. 21 or 22 years have dragged by since the day those jealous, those furious brothers sold their kid brother Joseph into slavery. Let me, let me, let me do the arithmetic for you. So Joseph is, is sent into slavery at 17. He's 10 years in Potiphar's house, and then Mrs. Potiphar says, you know the story. Three years in jail. Seven years of prosperity, okay, because you're going to have bumper crops for seven years. That's the dream of Pharaoh. Then calamity. They're into the calamity a year or two. Do the arithmetic. It's 21 or 22 years since they sold their bro. Look at verse 1 of chapter 42. When Jacob learned... This, this, is, this is fascinating. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Hey, guys, why do you just keep looking at each other? What's going on here? Verse 2, he continued, I have heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some food for us so that we may live and not die. Hey, I'm going to ask you a question. Come on, these are, these are professional shepherds. Don't you think the brothers, of Je the brothers of Joseph, don't you think they know that there's grain in Egypt? They probably heard it before Papa did. But they are purposely dragging their feet. They're going to let their families almost starve to death because there's something, there is something in Egypt that just won't let them go. What's in Egypt? No, who's in Egypt? Ah, a guilty conscience, I'm telling you, is a terrible traveling companion like the seven gaunt and ugly cows of Pharaoh's dream. That guilty conscience will consume your life alive. They don't want to go. Papa says, you got to go. Why are you waiting? And so 10, because Papa says, there's no way, Jose, you're taking the baby. You are not taking Benjamin. I'm not going to the grave without both of my Rachel's boys. Ten guilt-stricken brothers trudge to Egypt. And here we go. Verse 6, chapter 42, they arrive. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all the people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. With their faces to the ground, they're bowing down. And instantly, you didn't think he couldn't tell. And instantly, verse 7, as soon as he saw his brothers, Joseph recognized them. 
Do you know what's happening to Joseph right now? The almighty God of the universe is saying, hey, boy, those white spaces, I'm in control. Did you, were you 17 when you dreamed of this moment? I'm still in control. Stay with me. Don't you let me go. The dream goes on in one split second on their faces. Mercy. I want to hit the pause button right here. And I want to spend a moment with you brooding on this dark human emotion we call anger. So, Dwight, this is terrible. We're just getting ready for the, the great drama. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. There's a, there's a subtitle to this series. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, colon, How to Find Healing for Our Deepest Relationships. We're all about relationships in this mini-series that ends next Sabbath. There's something tucked away, anger, the most destructive emotion for any human relationship. We, we got to deal with this one. In fact, let me share with you Dick Tibbetts. He's a psychologist. He's a hospital chaplain. He's also a pastor. He's written a very practical book, title of the book, Forgive to Live, How Forgiveness Can Save Your Life. He defines anger in a way we need to get. We've got to get this one. So pull, pull your uh, study guide out of your worship bulletin. Let's go. I want you to see this. Definition of anger, Dick Tibbetts. You didn't get a study guide? Here come our friendly pioneer ushers are coming your way. Hold your hand up. Make sure that you get this. This one's a keeper. You're going to want what, uh, that list that's coming up in just a moment. So hold your hand up, up in the balcony as well. And those of you who are watching, we're delighted to have you. We've been having a very full uh, worship morning today, blessed, and we're delighted you're here. Live streaming, television, whatever. I'm going to put our website on the screen for you. There it is now. You see it, www.pmchurch.tv. You're looking for a miniseries, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It comes to an end in one more part. Best comes last, and that'll be next week. You're looking for the title, Sweet Revenge. Sweet Revenge. You find that, click on to the study guide. You'll have, you'll have the chance to write this definition down. You get that? You got that on your, uh, your computer? Good. Let's go. Keep your hand up. They're coming your way, but we're going to proceed ahead. Dick Tibbetts, definition of anger. Put it on the screen, please. You'll need to fill it in. Anger, a strong emotion of displeasure brought on by feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. Pretty perceptive. Keep going. A very fine line separates. People are surprised about this one. A very fine line separates hurt from anger. Hurt. Write down the word hurt. Most people do not consider hurt and anger as even related, but they are. In fact, two different words describing the same thing. That's what they are. Hurt and anger are simply two sides of the same coin, end quote. Hey, listen, I met a man once upon a time who was consumed by anger. It destroyed his friendships. It, it, it destroyed his home. It nearly destroyed his marriage. And I got to thinking about that man. What's going on in his life? There must be something deep that has hurt him. Hurt and anger, the same. Dick Tibbetts says, hey, listen, everybody experiences anger. But let me share with you seven deadly ways to not deal with that anger. We all experience anger. Seven deadly strategies that we ought not to embrace when we're confronted with anger, Joseph has the opportunity for life-destroying anger. Jot them down. There's seven of these. I want to fly these by you. Dick Tibbetts, the seven deadly strategies of anger. Number one, deadly strategy number one, overlooking the hurt by pretending it didn't happen or by discounting its impact. That's usually what I do. 
Many times I'll just demur, hey, listen, hey, listen, it's no, it's no big deal. Forget about it. It's nothing. And in my heart I'm saying, you creep, what were you thinking? I internalize it. That's what I do. And then I stew over it. It begins to eat me up. You know what I should be saying? You're right. You ought to be apologizing. I forgive you. No, no, it's not an hey, It's no big deal. Internalizing it. Wrong. Deadly strategy number one. Here comes deadly strategy number two, focusing on the unfair behavior of the other person. If you cannot define both sides of the problem, you don't even know there's a problem. You, you only have your side, and you don't know the problem at all. You've got to be able to understand both sides. Deadly strategy number three. Jot this one down. Displacing anger on a third person. Oh, this is insightful. I'm putting, I'm putting tibbets on the screen for this one. Some hurt and angry people who can't deal directly with the one who offended them. Maybe that person has died or moved away or is too intimidating. Some people instead focus their anger on a substitute. This substitute is often weaker and therefore more likely to accept displaced anger without expressing much of any objection. That's why when he comes home, he yells at the kids. When she comes home, she kicks the dog, or maybe it's the other way around. Why? I'm blaming I can't, I, I can't deal with the guy that's really at fault, so I take it out on you. Deadly strategy number four, denying the anger. Who, me? Problem with anger? Are you crazy? I don't have a problem with anger. Number five, developing a mental picture of revenge. Ooh. It may be a sophisticated form of revenge. You're not going to kill anybody, but, oh, it is so delicious in the back of your mind. That's so-and-so. You're living for the moment when I, in front of everybody, I am going to set the record straight. You go, big guy. Revenge. Revenge. You know what? It'll only kill you. You're just making it worse, planning that secret revenge. Number six, using drugs, alcohol, or food to numb the pain. You can't, you can't eat your way out of this. You can't drug your way out of this. It might be some sort of temporary solution, but it will only compound your problems and in, in, impinge upon your own health. And finally, number seven. Oh, this was new for me. This was new for me. Becoming cynical about life. Tibbetts writes, some of the worst cynics you'll ever meet are angry people who have never effectively dealt with a deep and perhaps long-held hurt. They have become experts in scorn, ridicule, and derision. They get whatever joy they can from skewering the naive hopes of the gullible. You might know a cynic or two in your life. Do you know an angry person? Huh? Hey, wait a minute. Maybe you're the angry person. Is there any hope for our anger? Is there any help? Yep, embedded right here in this story. Plenty of hope and healing. Let's go. So there they are now. They're on their faces. The governor of Egypt knows exactly who these ten men are. And in that split second, Joseph decides, I'm going to have to put a plan together. Yo! See, he has to know, have they changed? Are they transformed? Yo, I know why you guys are here. You're just a bunch of Canaanite spies. That's what you are. You want to seek the land out. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in prison. He needs time to think. 
And so into the, dungeon, the, into the dungeon that Joseph spent three years in, his brothers will now spend three days in brooding over, guess what? They know something's not right. It must be what we did. Three days later, they back up. Joseph announces, all right, gentlemen, look at it. I've had a change of mind. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to put you all in jail. I'm going to keep one of you here in prison. And he looks at Simeon, the most cruel of his brothers. He looks at Simeon. He says, I'm putting you, sir, in prison. And listen to me, guys. I'm going to hold him here until you bring that little brother you told me about. Until you bring that little brother here, he's staying. If you never come back, your brother rots in jail. Do you hear me? You've been lying through your teeth. That's what you're doing. Simeon has taken off. And nine boys... Go back to the ranch and woefully recite to Papa what has happened in Egypt. And J Jacob cannot understand this. Look at uh, chapter 43. Israel, verse 6, this, that would be Jacob. Israel asked, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living, he asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How were we to know, he would say, bring your brother down here? <laughs> However long it took to consume the grain, it got consumed, and the famine is only worse. It is not abating in Canaan. Jacob calls the boys together. Guys, please, get more grain. We're out. Papa, no Benjamin, no grain. Do you understand that? And then it is that Judah, and by the way, Judah is the brother who thought up the idea of selling Joseph as a slave. Then it is Judah steps up, and he says, Dad, I pledge to you my life for the life of Benjamin. We have to go, Papa. We have to. Judah, something must be happening to the boys. How different their reception, by the way, when they get back to Egypt. They are, they are immediately told, the governor is throwing you a banquet. And the dinner was a smashing success. And coincidentally, have you noticed, guys, we're all sitting in the order of our ages. What's up with that? And then Benjamin, strangely enough, he got five times as much food as the rest of the brothers. I have no idea how he could eat five times more food, but he got five times as much. And the brothers aren't, they're not bothered. Hey, you go. <laughs> but... There is one more test the prime minister must render. He must know. What would they do with this Benjamin? Are they still that ragtag band of angry, jealous men? Would they sell Benjamin too? He needs to know. The whole world knows the test of the silver chalice. Joseph's personal attendant takes that prized piece of the governor and sticks it in one, shh, one of the brothers' bags. The boys leave Egypt. Their donkey's loaded. I mean, it is happy, happy home time, zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day as they head out of town. 
Just a couple miles out, strangely enough, they hear the sound of pounding hooves and a cloud of dust, and in the dust is the stallion, and the personal attendant of Joseph jumps off. Somebody has stolen the master's silver chalice. The men are incensed. What? Are you crazy? I'll tell you what. If you can find it in any of these bags, you kill the guy you find it in. Deal. Is it all right? And with a flair for drama, he starts with the eldest. He starts with Reuben. And slowly, agonizingly, slowly, he goes through all the bags until finally there's only Benjamin's left. He open, unties the neck, reaches into the grain, catching the glint of the afternoon sun is that silver chalice dripping with grain as he holds it up, and there is a collective gasp. <sighs> now, this was new for me. Carlisle B. Haynes suggests. I think there's something to this. Carlisle B. Haynes suggests that the brothers have to assume Benjamin stole the cup. I mean, how else, how else did he get it? That's why it makes it even more compellingly, compellingly persuasive that all the brothers, all ten of them, determined to go back with Benjamin to the governor. Twenty-two years ago, yo, Ben, we'll miss you. We'll send you postcards. We'll let Daddy know where you are. Something has happened to those boys as now eleven brothers return to the governor's palace. And guess what? Judah steps forward to speak. That's right, Judah. Haynes describes this as without match for nobility and for natural eloquence in the world's literature in any language, sacred or profane. What you are about to read is stunningly eloquent. No words are going on the screen. I want you to read it in your Bible. This is so powerful. No words on the screen. I'm going to read Judah to you, with you. This is chapter 44. We pick it up in verse 18. Then Judah went up to him, the governor, and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he's the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, The boy, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. So when we, when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. And our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down, Papa. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. 
One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces. I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, my Lord, if the boy is not with us, my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, if he sees that the boy is not there, my Lord, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of my father down to the grave in sorrow. So, my Lord, your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. So then, please, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come to my father. Something has happened. Something has happened to these boys. Makes you cry just reading it. Now I'll put it on the screen. Then Joseph. Oh, can you feel what Joseph is feeling? Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, Look, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, come, 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 come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, look, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And then look at, four, look at 14, look at 14. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers, and he wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. Ladies and gentlemen, there's only one word to describe so profoundly an emotional moment. There is only one word, and that word is the glorious word, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Mingling their tears, 12 grown men hugging, laughing, and crying at the same time. Patriarchs and prophets put it on the screen. The brothers humbly confessed their sin and entreated Joseph's forgiveness. They had long suffered anxiety and remorse, and now they rejoiced. He is still alive. We are not guilty of his death. Can anger kill you? Let's rephrase the question. Can not forgiving kill you? The answer to both is yes. Jot it down, will you? Based on science, the science of research done at Duke University, the American Heart Association, write it down, now declares anger a risk factor alongside other markers like cholesterol, exercise, and nutrition. Keep your pen moving. The journal Circulation warns a person who is most prone to anger is three times more likely to have a heart attack than someone who is least prone to anger. 
You know why? Because anger triggers the adrenal glands, fight or flight. And it releases, those glands release a chemical messenger called cortisol, which is a huge stress indicator, controlling blood sugar and blood pressure, immune responses, and anti-inflammatory action. The problem with with unresolved anger is it keeps the switch on in your life and those adrenal glands just keep pumping and pumping and pumping and that chemical begins to slowly tear down your very body. It's killing you. Anger can kill. Which is why the solution to anger, I love this, the solution to anger is forgiveness. Samantha Boardman, MD, she wrote an online piece entitled The Healing Power of Forgiveness. Put the words on the screen for you. Forgiveness is linked with lower. I want you to circle in your study guide how many times you see the word lower. Forgiveness is linked with lower mortality rates, lower cholesterol, lower blood pressure, lower cortisol, the stress chemical in our brains, and a lower likelihood of developing cardiovascular disease. Keep reading. Forgiveness may even support a healthier immune system. In addition to physical benefits, forgiveness is associated with psychological benefits as well. Overall well-being is linked with forgiveness as our higher quality marriages. Remember, we're all about relationships now. Higher quality marriages and committed romantic relationships. All of us in this room are beneficiaries of forgiveness. Oh, and one more line. Forgiveness is even related to better sleep. What's not to like about that? Jot it down. If anger can kill you, clearly forgiveness can heal you. Joseph had one, only one choice, bitter or better. You and I only have one choice, bitter or better. And Joseph has chosen the better part. For you see, the gift of forgiveness, here's what I wish you'd take home, just this one line. The gift of forgiveness is the sweetest revenge of all. Because it's only through forgiveness that you release the perpetrator of your pain. It's only through forgiveness that you release the instigator of your hurt. You let her go. You let him go into the compassionate care of Almighty God. You can no longer hold on to that. It will kill you if you do. In fact, I love the way, last line from Tibbetts, put it on the screen. No release means exactly what he's describing here. You see this? When you refuse to forgive, you are in effect handcuffing yourself to the person who offended you, to a person you don't even like. You know you don't like her. And you know the worst thing about that? While you wait for that person to unlock the cuffs, you are holding the key in your own hands. End quote. It's like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to drop over. That's why the gift of forgiveness, come on, the gift of forgiveness is the sweetest revenge of all. It's the truth of the story of Joseph and Jesus, by the way. Joseph forgave his brothers. Jesus forgave his brothers and sisters. In fact, on that dark Friday, as they are pressing, pushing, pounding that nail through his palm, Jesus is praying a prayer. You remember the prayer? Father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Desire of ages. 
Put that right up behind it. Desire of ages. I love this quote. Oh, my. That prayer of Christ for his enemies embraced the world. It took in every sinner that had lived or should live from the beginning of the world to the end of time. Upon all of us rests the guilt of crucifying the Son of God. And to all of us, forgiveness is freely offered. In Christ's prayer and death, every sin you will ever commit in your life, past, present, or future, has already been forgiven. Do you understand that? You are already forgiven. It's the gospel. You're already forgiven. We have been forgiven. Let's be honest. We have been forgiven very, very much. Guess what? We must also forgive very, very much. I end with a story. A story about a broken relationship. It's a powerful one. J. Allen Peterson tells a story in his book, The Myth of the Greener Grass. Here's Peterson setting the story up. Years ago, I read a classic story of excellent forgiveness that moves me again as I write it. The woman kept it locked in her heart for half a century, but shared it with dear Abby. You remember her? Dear Abby to help others in the same position. Here we go now. The woman writing. I was 20 and he was 26. We had been married two years and I hadn't dreamed he could be unfaithful. The awful truth was brought home to me when a young widow from a neighboring farm came to tell me she was carrying my husband's child. My world collapsed. I wanted to die. I fought an urge to kill her and him. I knew that wasn't the answer. I prayed for strength and guidance, and it came. I knew I had to forgive this man, and I did. I forgave her too. I calmly told my husband what I had learned, and the three of us worked out a solution together. What a frightened little creature she was. The baby was born in my home. Everyone thought I had given birth and that my neighbor was helping me. Actually, it was the other way around. But the widow was spared humiliation. She had three other children, and the little boy was raised as my own. He never knew the truth. I have never mentioned this incident to my husband. It has been a closed chapter in our lives for 50 years. But I have read the love and gratitude in his eyes a thousand times. See, it's true. The gift of forgiveness is the sweetest revenge of all. Take out your Connect card, please. Found in your worship bulletin. We need to respond. We can't just hear this. What shall we do? Guests, we're glad to have you as our ushers move to the, receive these cards from you. You can just fill out what you're comfortable with. Put, put an email address there if you would like a, a response. Turn the card over. This is called My Next Step Today. Side of the card, box number one. Even as Jesus has forgiven my sins against him, I choose to forgive others their sins against me. Is anybody who couldn't put a check mark there? Come on, let's do. Box number two. I would like to be anointed for physical, emotional, relational, or spiritual healing on Tuesday evening coming up, 7 o'clock here in the Pioneer Sanctuary. We did this last year. It was so well received that we're doing it again this year at the end of the semester. If you would like healing, physical, emotional, spiritual, if you need healing and you'd like somebody to join with you, there'll be different stations. You're not standing in front of any, anybody. There'll be st stations all over. You may pick one, and a pastor and an elder will pray over you 
and will anoint you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for healing, the healing you seek. Tuesday, 7 o'clock right here. And finally, box number three, I would like to prepare to follow Jesus in baptism. If it's true, he's forgiven all my sins, past, present, and future. What kind of a Savior is this? What kind of a friend is this God? I want to follow him. You've not been baptized? Make the decision. Just put a little check mark there. Make sure we have an email address. We'll be in touch. We'll, go the, we'll journey the journey with you. Why not? He's as good as Joseph. He's even better. Let's pray. Oh, God. What can we say? Anger, forgiveness, we know them well. But we hear the cry of our Lord on the cross. Father, I beg of you, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And knowing that prayer was for us, and we stand forgiven. Oh, God, freely as we have received, now freely let us give. Is there somebody on this planet that needs to hear the words, I forgive you? Send us with joy. Send us with peace. Send us with courage to that one. And heal both of us. Receive now our morning tithes and offerings and these decisions through Jesus our Lord. Amen.